Hello, welcome to our Lighthouse podcast. We hope that this message brings inspiration and intent to your day. I'm going to continue our Christmas series, and if you were lucky enough to catch Pastor Paul's message last week, of course, he spoke about the minders and did this incredible job of unpacking Simeon and Anna, these two characters unique to Luke's gospel, who met Jesus as a baby. Take a second to to let that weigh on you. Imagine holding God in your arms as a little child, And, and not only that, but you've been waiting that moment your whole life. And this is Simeon Anna's story. And, and Simeon's so bold, he said, I'm not dying until I hold God in my arms. That was tremendous music to add. That was like a, is that called an overture? Is that an overture? Does that mean I'm over? Does that mean it's time to go, Andy? All right. And that's it, holding baby Jesus. Just let that weigh on you for a while. Great message. If uh, you haven't, if you weren't able to catch it here live, I encourage you jump on uh, YouTube and uh, on the website and and catch up with Paul's message. It's a fantastic one, indeed. He set me up well for this morning, and we're going to talk about a story that comes up probably once a year. So I have a question for you: What's something that you do once a year? Go ahead, have a think, have a chat. Once a year. Hose out your garbage bins. Ugh. Sit-ups or plank. That's a once-a-year thing for me. I hate core exercise. What's something you do once a year? This is a bit of a once-in-a-year story, this one, the Magi. kind of comes up at Christmas time, and then we don't really read it all that often. But this story is so peculiar so strange and so interesting. We have to pay attention to it. And, and I, I don't think it will just give us some gold once a year. I actually think this story is kind of like a topical theme that introduces us to the difference Jesus makes, not only in our hearts, not only in our neighbors, but in the entire globe. And it's certainly why it's at the front of Matthew's gospel. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let me read you the story. Okay, let's do this. If you're reading along, it's Matthew chapter 2. It's going to be on the screens, of course, but you can read along in your own Bible if you like. Are you ready? Paul is? Anyone else? Oh, good. Get ready. This story's in a cracker. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, the great magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. He asked them, where is the Messiah? Where is he going to be born? 
The Messiah, if you haven't heard that word before, Messiah means promised one, okay? So let it remind you of kind of like the, the Matrix movie, you know, that, that idea of there's this promised one coming, he's going to save everybody. Well, the ancient Israelites had that dream also. Where is the Messiah going to be born? In fact, a little bit of context, this Messiah idea is big, right? It's millennia old, this waiting for this hero that would be king of the nation and save everybody. It was a huge idea. It was so exciting that it, it was whispered among people constantly. I wonder, I wonder if this person could be the Messiah. I wonder if this leader is the Messiah. Oh, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be so fantastic. When the promised one comes and makes us into the great nation that we believe God promised us to be, it's going to be fantastic. You know why they whispered it? is because it was treasonous to call someone the Messiah if they weren't. It was treason. You would literally be put to death for saying somebody was the Messiah if you were wrong. So this is like high stakes game, okay? So you whispered it, right, in case anyone actually heard you say it. Because if I went and said, yeah, well, I reckon he could be the Messiah, it would be like, what? Stone him? Get him out of here? It was dangerous talk. So it was whisper. It was a whisper. And here come the wise men. Where is the Messiah? <laughs> Where, wait, can you imagine? Now, this is a, we all think there's like three wise men that walk into Jerusalem. It's not true, okay? If you went into Jerusalem in the ancient Near East in this era, like let's say about 6 BC, and you captured the attention of Herod, King Herod, the great, who revolutionized architecture and economics across Judea at the time, if you captured his attention, you had a serious posse of homies rolling with you. We are talking an entourage, camels, donkeys, horses, gifts, robes so colorful you should belong in a Baptist choir carrying gifts into Jerusalem. You, you heard it, right? In the Bible when we read it, it said, it disturbed Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. They were seen. This was a big deal. Where is the Messiah? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Imagine being Herod. But I'm the king, right? Huh? Here we go. We're back in this. I can't get out of this story. It's so good. Okay, so Herod gets together all his posse and says, where is this Messiah going to be born? And they say, well, it's written. You know, centuries ago, the prophet Micah said, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you're by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, and he will shepherd all my people Israel. This is an ancient text that the uh, teachers of the law bring to Herod. So Herod calls the Magi together secretly, I might add, and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I may go and worship him. You're right. <laughs> After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed. 
on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and, I don't know what to bring, myrrh? I always think that's a funny one. Myrrh, if you don't know, is like a burial spice. You bring it to a birth of a baby? Dude, that's dark. You put the poor third wise men, right? <laughs> Jesus, I give you gold. You're like a king to me. And then the other guys, frankincense, because it's what they would burn. Frankincense was rare. You had to burn it. They burned it in the incense as worship to God. It was so rare. And it was expensive. So there's gold because I think you're a king. And frankincense because you are a god. And I didn't know what else to get. So I got you myrrh. It's like getting him a uh, BCF voucher. <laughs> it's, it's, like getting him a, it's like getting him a body shop gift basket. No, no, there's actually symbolism here because the, the first two gifts, right? Gold, because you're a king. Frankincense, because you're a god. And myrrh, because you're the god king over death. That's what the gifts symbolize. Beautiful thing. These wise men living up to their name. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I'm going to skip down just to verse 16. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Listen to this. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were anyone two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he'd learned from the Magi. Heavy, Herod. Wowzers. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the incredible story of your life. Thank you so much for the honorable men and women who, who thought about it and, and imagined the, the parts of it and interviewed people that were in it and then recorded it down so that we could have it in our palm today. And that for 2,000 years, faithful men and women have interpreted it and researched it and taught it back to us generation after generation so that we can learn of its meaning today. God, I thank you for this story. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as we gather in this moment, that it would be more than just our intellect and intelligence, but you, God, would bring meaning to it for us. Beyond the words that I speak, beyond the words that we read on the page, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would breathe life into this story for us and that it would change the way we live for better and that we would give that change back to you as worship God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you know anything about me, you know I love questions. Questions. So I've got three quick questions for you this morning. The first question is, why the Magi? And this question is for Matthew the author of this book. He's the only guy in the Bible that put this story in there. It's not in any of the other Gospels. It's not mentioned anywhere else. I don't, the, the prophets of old Israel don't even foresee this 
It's this kooky little story that gets put in there somewhere. And yet, he thought it was an important way to open his book. So, Matthew, why this story? Why would you pick this one out? And not only that, why would you put it at the front of your book? Well, Matthew is quite an incredible thinker. And when it comes to ancient biographies, we've got to do a little bit of ancient literature here, okay? Bear with me. We'll do it in 30 seconds. Ancient biographers didn't necessarily tell their stories in chronological form because it was boring, right? When he was little, he was born, and then he became a little boy, and then a bigger boy, and then a teenager, and then this. It's boring, right? So Matthew's this incredible storyteller. He didn't write the story of Jesus. He didn't, like, bring it into publication, let's say, until about 60 AD. So it's like 30 years after he was walking with Jesus. So that's a lot of time because I'm only just really in my 30s. I'm not nearing 40 at all. I know what 30 years feels like. And Matthew takes 30 years to set this story up, thinking about all the interactions with Jesus that he had. What did it mean? Praying, asking God, God, what did you mean by that encounter? What is my memory telling me? Let me go and ask all my friends. I'll ask Matthew. I mean, I am Matthew. I'll ask Mark, I'll ask John, I'll ask Mary, I'll ask Joanna and the other girls that were hanging out with Jesus at the time. I'll ask all of the 12 disciples. I'll ask anyone that ever encountered him questions. And then I'll pick this story together and tell this incredible narrative of Jesus' life. And so picture it like a movie. And you know in those like historical bios, it always gives you like kind of um, text on the screen as context at the start. Like that's where the movie starts. There's maybe that awesome overture. Could we have that again, please? That kind of like thrilling music, it's drawing you in. And then there's this like someone's picked a cool font and they've, they type up about maybe a paragraph of text just to kind of give you that. Well, Matthew does that. He gives the genealogy of Jesus. Remember how I said saying that the Messiah was treasonous? Listen to how he starts his story. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The dude just puts it out there, plain as day in print. Jesus is the Messiah. And then he gives the genealogy. So that's all the context, right? And then fade to black. And then the opening scene. And what's the opening scene? The Magi. What? So ancient biographers would use stories, narrative like that, to kind of build like a topical theme. Like this is the introduction to the story because this is the main theme of the story. Begins with the Magi. Zoroastrian Persian star readers from a country we've never even heard of. Jesus comes to the people you'd least expect. That's the theme of Matthew. He's the Messiah and he comes to the people you'd least expect. What a huge question for us. When I really think about my life and when I pray with God and have time with him, I think I'm the person you'd least expect Jesus to want to come to. Prideful, arrogant, looking at Lisi for 
nods. You know, a bit hedonistic or heaps hedonistic. I wouldn't expect Jesus to want to come to me. I think about the people in my community, the neighborhood that I love, university students, uh, people who work at Colorbond, people who surf, people who rock climb, people who run businesses, young people trying to figure out their place in the world, people who have come from overseas and have been warmly, uh, well, ideally, warmly welcomed to our community. Who are the people in our world that you'd least expect Jesus to be with? Because that's who he wants to be with. If he, if he draws ancient star-reading magicians from Iran, you can be damn sure he wants to know your neighbor. Sorry, I said damn. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just passionate. Paul's keeping count. Thank you, Pastor Paul. I look forward to our meeting on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Straight up. Very good. Jesus, why, why does Matthew include this in the book? Because he wants to explain to us that Jesus comes to the people you'd least expect. So let, let's flip that for a second. Who are the people you'd most expect? I, I'm going to start describing someone who I think would be one of the people you'd most expect. And I want you to tell me um, who that person is. Are you ready? Okay. Royalty born by blood into a family line that has been considered one of the most noblest of all Israel. Not only that, he's got a good relationship with the global superpower of the day, Rome. Like a really good relationship. Like, we'll let you be king if you make sure we stay the emperor. Uh, not, not only that, he's a... He's a an incredible businessman and visionary with architectural dreams that you could never have imagined. In fact, the most precious building in all of Israel, the temple, right? It was knocked down 500 years prior by the Babylonians, smashed Solomon's incredible building, one of the wonders of the ancient world, smashed into rubble, burned down. This guy rebuilds it, but better. He, he, in fact, has such a grand plan for this temple that he has to start literally from the foundations up. He's got to reinforce the earth that the temple is going to stand on because the temple is going to be so grand and heavy and amazing. So he gets people sliced to truck in minibus-sized chunks of sandstone. I kid you not, I've seen them with my own eyes. They are the size of the lighthouse van, maybe even bigger. Not by excavators or cranes, human sweat. Huge lumps and builds this retaining wall. This is all before the temple even starts to get built because the temple's going to be so amazing. And then Across all of Judea, incredible feats of architecture from mountaintop fortresses to palaces, all kinds. Do you know who I'm talking about yet? Herod the Great. Arguably the greatest king of the Israelites to date. Could he be the Messiah? Remember, it's a whisper. He's great. He's connected. 
He's wealthy. He's famous. And yet, Jesus comes to those you'd least expect. Like Herod was ticking the boxes, right? Wealth, fame, glory. Wait, glory? Where did his glory go? Who did he give the glory to? Because the wise men were important kings as well. They had fame and wealth. We know that from their entourage. Their posse of homies was big. They had big gifts. They ticked similar boxes to King Herod. But there's one important difference. Herod wanted the glory for himself. What did the wise men do when they came face to face with Jesus? Worshipped him. What did Herod do? Jealousy, fury, murder. Jesus looks at the intent of your heart first. Doesn't matter where you're from. So why not Herod? Because of the intent of his heart. It points us to such an important thing, an important characteristic of God is that he finds you where you are. God will come to you in the intent in which you stand. If, if your frame, your lens of the world, your bias is so fixed, you can't open to the fact God might be speaking to you another way, he, he won't. If, if, if who you are and what you're doing right now is it, that's it, you're fixed, there's no more possibility for God in your life, then there won't be. But if you live in humble curiosity, believing wholeheartedly that God can bring more to your life, and to, to put more potential alongside you, and to create more wealth for your business so that you can give glory to Him, He'll find you there. He'll find you there. Why not Herod? His heart was in the wrong place. So he comes to the wise men instead. Last question. Who does Jesus come to then? We know it's not Herod, and we know that it's it's weird, kooky, wise men from the east, but that's not us. So who does Jesus come to? Well, fortunately, on the very next page, Matthew tells us. I'm going to read it for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh my goodness. This is a hard one to read, people. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek who discipline their strength to use it for God. They'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be in right standing with God, for they'll find their fill. Blessed are those who practice mercy, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are you if you are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called God's children. Blessed are you if you're persecuted because of your righteousness or your, your belief and right standing in God. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. These are the people Jesus comes to. The question for us is, do we find ourselves in that list? Are they the characteristics we're pursuing with our life? It's an important question for us to ask. I want to invite you to go and ask that question with God. There's, we've... we've researched a couple of unique things to Matthew, but I want to tell you something that Matthew and his friends had consensus on. It's part B of the kind of person Jesus comes to. Now, Matthew and all his friends agreed on this one. Jesus comes to those who ask 
those who seek and those who knock. People who pursue Jesus, he comes to them. He's there. So Matthew tells us that in chapter 7, verse 7. He records Jesus saying, ah, seek, knock. Then Luke picks up on the same story. Luke's not even a Jew. He's not even part of Matthew's people, but he picks up on the same story and goes, yep, that's important. I'll put that in chapter 11. Ask, seek, knock. John, the disciple that Jesus loved. (laughs) I still can't get over himself calling himself that, but he writes in Revelation 3.20, ask and the door will be open to you. Here's a second question for us this morning. How regularly do we ask, seek, and knock for Jesus in our life? We do it when we wake up. When we begin our day, Jesus, what does today look like? Where are you going to show up unexpectedly in my relationships, in my business, in the way I parent? in the kind of attitude I walk into school with. Jesus, where are you in my day? I'm looking for you. I'm seeking you. Are you in the stories of the Bible that I read and remind myself of? Are you in this conversation that I'm having with the person right now? Are you here, God? Where are you? God, are you behind this door? I've got a big decision to make in my life and I don't want to go through this door without you. I want want to find you in what I'm doing, God. So I'm going to knock on the doors of my life and look for you behind them. Thank you for listening. Please connect with us at adifferentlight.com.au or join us at one of our Sunday gatherings.